Hello everyone who's listening. My name is Noah Kyle and welcome to The Split Line, a podcast on the two-party system. Throughout the podcast, we will dive into its history, ideology, advantages and disadvantages, and future prospects. In addition, we will be interviewing a special guest with knowledge about these subjects every episode. Okay, right now we're going to be discussing the history of the two-party system. Here with me is Luke Thompson, political consultant and co-host of the podcast, Constitutionally Speaking. Hello, Mr. Thompson. Okay, so let's just start out with a quick discussion on the first two-party system. Alexander Hamilton's Federalists versus Jefferson's Democratic Republicans. The first were in favor of a stronger central government, the second a slightly weaker. Why do you think these men really chose to hold the views that they did? Is there anything in the past that could explain why they chose these views? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on, uh, Noah. It's great to talk to you. Um, the, the first party system, as we talk about it, the, the struggle between Hamilton and Jefferson, is only a party system in the sense that you had two sides battling it out. Um, it was a major ideological conflict in uh, early American political life. But, you know, when we think about political parties, we think of conventions and, and you know, committees and candidates formally aligned with brand names. And, and, and it was not that, although certain elements of that developed out of the, the conflict between the Federalists and Jefferson's uh, Democratic Republicans, um, who at the time were referred to as the Republicans, but are the sort of ancestral party of today's Democrats. Um, the central issue uh, between Hamilton and Jefferson was uh, who, with whom the United States would be aligned internationally. Uh, and, and that had lots of different ramifications. Hamilton uh, wanted to align the United States with England, uh, Jefferson wanted to align with the French. They both had good arguments uh, for their respective positions. Um, France had obviously been essential to winning the American Revolution. Uh, there was a great deal of affection for that. France. Um, oh, sorry, say that again. I, so, I didn't hear you. Yes, so Jefferson wanted to pay back France because I believe he said that they didn't really ask for much, so we should, we owe them, so we should just fight with them in the war and stand behind them, ally with them. Uh, correct. And then, you know, beyond that, um, the, uh, you know, who one allied with had a lot of ramifications for, um, for which part of the country was going to benefit. Um, in the South, in the United States South, uh, you had a lot of commodity production. They made raw materials, indigo, um, sugar, and of course, most notoriously, cotton. Um, in the North, there was much less commodity production. People were making more manufactured goods. Um, and so the desire uh, was to, uh, to, to compete, to align oneself with one of these two stronger countries, either the British or the French, um, in order to maximize uh, the export economy um, uh, or the export, uh, exports going out from, from one region versus the other. Now, it's interesting because on the one hand, Britain was a greater threat to manufacturers in the north, uh, your industrial manufacturers, because obviously um, Great Britain had their own manufacturing base in a way that the French did not. Um, and likewise, the French had, in many respects, larger commodity agricultural production in the homeland uh, than the Americans did. But uh, when you factor in their international colonies, you know, Britain's uh, Caribbean colonies uh, were, were much bigger competitors with the American South than Britain's manufacturers were with the American North. And likewise, France's uh, demand for hunger for commodities was such that even though they had, for instance, larger domestic grain production, they were still desperate to buy American goods, including things like cotton. And so 
uh, you know, these two factors were, were really the, the, the considerable, the, the main driving force. Uh, Hamilton believes that America is going to be best served aligned with Britain, uh, advancing American manufacturing, and, um, you know, even if that comes at the expense of Southern commodity exports. And Jefferson wants a nation of farmers growing commodities and selling them abroad. Um, Madison, who's very closely allied with Jefferson in this, believes also that, um, you know, the Americans can sort of play both sides if they're aligned with the French, because he believes the, the British are so dependent on American agriculture that the Americans have a strong negotiating position against the British that they don't totally have with the French. And so he's thinking about it as, as a way to leverage uh, their position vis-a-vis -vis the French. Sorry, that was, a, that was a long winded answer, but I hope that helps. Uh, no problem. So it's interesting how the early two party system, as much as you can call it, that was really based a lot on foreign policy, which I feel is probably a little bit different than today. Very, very different from today. Um, you know, when the United States was was newly independent, it was a very weak country. It had to worry about Spain, France and Britain, all of whom had major presences in the New World uh, or in the American North American continent at that time. Um, Britain was very closely allied with a large number of powerful Native American nations in uh, what's called the Ohio Valley. And those uh, groups were uh, directly um, by treaty, they owned the territory in the Ohio Valley. But as the United States grew in population, there was a great desire to settle the Ohio Valley. And that would have expedited conflict with uh, these Native American nations who were allies of British and frankly served as a buffer state um, in, in alignment with the British. And so there was a real concern that if American settlers crossed into Kentucky and Ohio, uh, what would happen is they would get into conflict with uh, the Native Americans, and that would lead to a broader war that would bring Britain in and they would reconquer the United States. So, so protecting American independence and sovereignty was the primary concern of the founding fathers. They had very different theories about how to do that. Um, there's also an important element where central banking plays into this. It was Hamilton's belief that the best way to protect American sovereignty was to integrate the United States into the international financial system by taking on debt from the British and the Dutch and other European powers. Because if the United States had one debt set and was paying it back, then that would make it less appealing for uh, countries to invade and thus wipe out America's debt obligations, provided that debt was being paid. By contrast, Jefferson thought the best security for the United States was to grow and expand grow its population, expand its territory, including into Florida, controlled by the Spanish, Louisiana, controlled by the French, and eventually, although loosely so, and then, of course, also into the Ohio Valley, which was controlled by the British under the Treaty of Paris that ended the Revolutionary War. Well, it would definitely seem that Jefferson got his way, considering how large our country is, maybe not in his <laughs> lifetime, but... Um, Okay. Yeah, he, uh, he, he, he sort of uh, lost every battle and won the war. He, he lost on the central bank uh, during his presidency. And uh, in many respects, he lost on internal improvements. And he lost on aligning the United States with the British, um, uh, with the British uh, economic zone, so to speak. But he also uh, won with the Louisiana Purchase, uh, buying, from, uh, buying from France almost the entirety of the Mississippi uh, River Valley. And surrounding areas. Well, yep, that was definitely a big victory. And now that we've talked about conflicts between the two men, let's talk about someone who clearly didn't really want those conflicts to happen, Washington. He was quoted, and this is not really a direct quote. He said, the spirit of party serves only to distract the public administration from the common good. So, um, why do you think the two men really continued to fight and quarrel and develop their parties, despite Washington, who was president, he was general, and he was a super influential figure at that time, warning the men of the dangers of such parties? Sure. Well, it's, it's important to understand that a lot of what we think about political parties today, we learned because of the experiences of the founding fathers. 
um, they did not have a very well-developed idea of what a political party is. So today, we think of a political party as a group of people who has an idea of what's good for the country. And the opposing political party is a group of people who have an idea of what's good for the country that's different. And these two competing visions of the general good attempt to appeal to the public and win elections based on those visions and the personalities they can recruit to be vehicles for those visions, right? Um, that's not the way the founding generation thought politics happened. When, when they talk about party, they mean something less organized and a bit more, um, a bit more factional. So something like a social class or a religious sect or um, you know, a region or an industrial interest. When they talk about the spirit of party, that's kind of what they mean is, um, is, is these different self-interested groups that don't care about the general good. What Washington believed and, and what all of the founding fathers believed was that the task of government was to do equal justice across these different factions. It wasn't to wipe them out. It was instead to do your best to do to be fair by all of them, to give each of them their its due. Um, and so when Washington talks about the spirit of faction distracting from good administration, what he means is if people give in to interests of one particular faction rather than doing justice by other all of the factions, equal justice, um, then they then they do injustice. They they serve they use the state to serve one group instead of another group. And this is another word for tyranny to the founding fathers. Now, at the same time, all this is happening across the, the English channel, you have an English member of parliament and philosopher named Edmund Burke. And starting in 1776, Burke is, is, a, is, is a fairly conservative uh, member of parliament, but he is sympathetic with the Americans uh, and, and sympathizes with their, their claims of injustice. And starting in 1776, he begins to write a series of essays on what, what will become a kind of modern theory of political parties of, as, as we said earlier, competing visions of the general good, trying to appeal to the public. So he's saying, look, instead of building out governments around personalities and corruption and patronage, what if we were just to acknowledge that we don't know what's good for the country, we disagree about it, and we organize ourselves around these disagreements, and we use elections to decide who wins, and then you have a program. But all of this happens after the, the Revolutionary War has already started, and so the Americans essentially don't pay attention to it. And that's why the Constitution doesn't have an account of political parties or factions within it, even though the founders are thinking about this a lot. On a personal level, Washington is very close to Jefferson through his sort of deep family ties in the tidewater of Virginia, where both men are from. He's also personally extremely close to Hamilton, and they have a very stormy relationship, but Hamilton, for a considerable part of the Revolutionary War, is Washington's uh, aide-de-camp. Uh, he views Washington and it during times in his life as, as a father figure. Washington does not have children. And so in some respects, he sees Hamilton as a son. Um, and so they have a, a, a personally very intense relationship. And this puts Washington in a position where while he agrees more with Hamilton on policy, he um, is culturally much closer to Jefferson. And so tries to balance between the two interests, though when all is said and done after his presidency, Washington could be described as a federalist. Okay, so he was, the reason he suggested um, not really splitting up into factions is just because it was his view that he kind of associated with both Jefferson and Hamilton and you think he really didn't want to have to make the choice between the two parties or what? No, because at the end, by the election of 1800, and he dies in, in December of 1799. Um, but, but by the time the election of 1800 is coming up, this is at the tail end of the John Adams administration, Washington is, is openly associated with the Federalists and very concerned about um, some of the ideas coming out of Jefferson. 
Um, I, I think the biggest issue for him is that he was very reluctant as the father of the country and self-consciously the father of the country to um, become a partisan figure because I think he worried about um, that tearing the country apart, leading to secession crises and things like that. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to know what would have happened had he lived into the 19th century. Um, but the fact that he died when he did before the crisis of 1800, um, in some respects protects him from having had to make those choices. Uh, he's quite a bit older than all of these people too. So, you know, he gets, he basically gets pneumonia and dies, uh, because he's riding around in the cold. Um, but, uh, you know, he is also considerably older than these, these other, uh, people. So according to someone else I talked to, a political science professor, Thomas Jefferson was assigned to France as an ambassador, partly because the Federalists wished to clear away powerful Democratic Republicans from the creation of the Constitution. How different do you think life would be today if the Constitution was created primarily by Democratic Republicans instead of, say, Federalists? Boy, that's a it's a great question. I, I think it's important to understand that when the um, when the Constitution is is being drafted, we don't have Democratic Republicans. We don't have Federalists. Right. After all, Madison is a huge advocate for the Constitution. He's probably its primary author. And other than Thomas Jefferson, he goes on to be the leading Democratic Republican. You know, his successor, James Monroe, by contrast, is an anti-federalist. So, so it's not true that, that you have all the Democratic Republicans on one side um, against the Constitution and all the federalists on the other side in favor of the Constitution. I think what's, what's interesting to wonder is what Jefferson's role at a constitutional convention would have been. And there, there are, I, you know, I don't think I've ever talked to anyone about this, but I, I have two ideas. So this is a great question. You know, Jefferson was a tremendously charismatic person, but he was not, he was not an honest person. Um, he played very dirty in the business of politics. And I think he would have struggled uh, to avoid the temptation of leaking about what was going on in Philadelphia through the newspapers. And he had already, by the time the convention rolled around, a, a network of newspaper writers who sort of did his bidding. The most notoriously of, of these was a man named Thomas Callender. Um, and Callender uh, would write any sort of, of, of calumny that, uh, that Jefferson put before him, but also, you know, leaked a lot of very valuable and important information. So the, the convention at Philadelphia was, was held in secret behind closed doors. People were free to have open debate without fear of that debate seeing the light of day. I'm not sure Jefferson would have been able to resist the temptation of, of bringing it into the open to have politics influence what people did. I think the second question is, Jefferson was euphemistically referred to uh, at the time as a free thinker. Um, that, that was a euphemism for an atheist. Uh, we often describe Jefferson as a deist. That's not quite right. He, he, he would have said he was a deist, but um, you know, Jefferson, Jefferson edited the Bible, uh, for instance, to get out all the extraneous parts, which is a, an act of tremendous uh, hubris, but also sort of tells you that he was had a fairly irreverent view towards religion. Yes. This was at a time when the United States was a very religious country. And Jefferson was able to um, initially be a great advocate for religious liberty and draw on the support of very religious people who were unsatisfied with the established Church of England. An established church is a church that's subsidized by the government and chosen by the government among the churches to be the official church. In Virginia, before independence, uh, the Church of England was the established church, and Jefferson was able to disestablish it by putting himself on the sides of people who were not members of the Church of England, but were still very, very religious. Had Jefferson had his way at the convention, that may not have been as possible. Um, first of all, New England had established churches. Uh, they were congregationalists. We don't have to get into what that means, but it was a, they were essentially Puritan churches. Um, those, those people and Jefferson did not agree on much, and they certainly didn't agree on religion. Um, and I think if Jefferson had been there, he might have pushed for 
a secular constitution that could not have gotten um, that could not have gotten uh, uh, ratified. Um, as it was, the, the Constitution says essentially nothing about religion. Um, the Bill of Rights obviously includes uh, language in the First Amendment that grants um, uh, it grants freedom of ex free exercise and also prohibits a federal the federal government from establishing a church. Um, James Madison wrote the, the Bill of Rights. He initially wrote 12 amendments. What we think of as the First Amendment was actually the third. Um, the, the reality is I think that could have really blown up um, Philadelphia. So in, in short, had Jefferson been there, either his presence would have been trivial, not unlike Hamilton's. You know, Hamilton proposed a few ideas, but then was gone for much of the convention and wasn't all that influential, even though he was essential to the arguments for ratification as, as you know, the principal author of the Federalist Papers. Jefferson might have gone that way, come in, thrown some ideas around about style or this or that, and then not been a major factor. But I think had he been a major factor at the convention in Philadelphia, uh, it's very hard to see a, a constitution getting out of the convention that could have been ratified. So like he would have insisted on it being secular and had it not been secular, his insistence on talking about it, you think that could have really held it back and kept it from becoming reality? Yeah, it could have, it could have split the convention. Um, you know, you have at Philadelphia, you have people who are very strong federalists, people who want a strong central government, people, you know, Hamilton is kind of on the far end of this, um, who want uh, a president elected by a council for life. And on the other end, you have people like George Mason, who doesn't wind up signing the Constitution, but is very helpful. Um, Luther Martin is another one of these people. Um, and these are these are folks who are very what we would come to call old Republicans. Um, they are very uh, they look favorably on the Articles of Confederation. They do not believe that they have failed to serve the American national interest. They're open to amendments, but not to the wholesale revision that we wind up getting out of Philadelphia. In the end, there is a critical mass of people that will go on to be Democrats, Democratic Republicans, and people who will go on to be Federalists who all agree to get behind what comes out of Philadelphia because the convention in the main does not split. Yes. So, so, so that's the critical thing um, is that, that Jefferson was charismatic enough in small settings and effective enough at, at negotiating with people um, through the use of the press that I think he could have really really done a lot of damage to the convention in Philadelphia. So um, if he was there, do you think the Great Compromise, the Connecticut Compromise, where um, they kind of settled out between the New Jersey and Virginia plans for stronger and weaker government, that probably might not have happened? Yeah, it, it would have been very possible for Jefferson to create problems. You know, um, John Randolph, uh, was very important in getting that across the finish line. Now, the one thing about the convention is that it was full of influential Virginians. And so if there was ever a group of people who were going to be able to check Jefferson and keep him in line, uh, it would have been those men. Um, you know, Hamilton winds up for quite a chunk of time being the only New York delegate there. Um, by contrast, the Virginians really are in the, the center of the of the ratifying convention. And I think that probably they could have kept Jefferson um, in check more than in most other small group settings. But it is a fascinating, it is a fascinating thing to, to think about. And there's, there's no obvious answer. Certainly, I think looking back, we're, we're all better for the fact that he was in France enjoying wine and other, other things that, that uh, people were enjoying in Paris at that time. Yes. Okay. So, um, I was listening to the podcast you co-host, Constitutionally Speaking, recently, and I heard you mention you were, it was, I believe, a little bit about the history of some parties and how um, a massive platform for the Republican Party used to be that it was like the big central party. And would you say out of all of the parties and factions and groups 
political groups in our country's history, which one would you say was the most open to compromise and working with the other side? Ooh, interesting. That's a very good question. Um, probably the probably the Whigs, which is why they they blew up and fell apart. Um, <laughs> so strong, um, definitive platform for a party, not working with the other side. They want their own views, not other people's. There, there are, I, I would put it this way, there are worse things for a political party than to stand for something and lose. Um, it's very hard in the moment, and I'll put my day job hat on here as someone who runs political campaigns for a living. Um, the, how to put this, if a political party stands for something and loses, then it, then it has both a record of having stood for an idea if that idea becomes popular in the future. And it also has a sort of referendum from the public on a set of ideas. But a political party that stands for nothing um, is a political party that will wind up losing its supporters and also its elected officials to groups and organizations who are willing to stand for something. Um, and so it's important, I think, for any political party to have a, a sense of itself, to have a, a purpose, an identity, and goals that it can organize around. Um, having said that, it's often the case that there, there's usually sort of one majority political party and one minority political party at any time in the United States. Um, political identities are very, very sticky. And uh, people don't change parties very often. When they do, it takes a long time and it's, it's, you know, it's a messy process. Um, for most of the 20th century, there were a lot more Democrats than there were Republicans. Now, that didn't mean Republicans couldn't win the presidency and, and win national majorities. It simply meant that within the electorate, there were a lot more Democrats than there were Republicans. Now, as a result of that, you had Northern Democrats who were you know, pushing the envelope on civil rights in the 1960s in the same political party as members of the Ku Klux Klan. Right. Uh, obviously, yes, yeah, Southern Democrats, but also some border state Democrats, you know, from West Virginia, of course, and elsewhere. And so, um, you know, how does one keep these people together? Uh, the answer is ultimately one doesn't. They fragment. Um, but for a lot of the 20th century, from say 1935 until roughly 1965, um, and that's a long time, that's you know, a third of a century almost, uh, the Democratic Party in Congress, uh, and then even after that in the House of Representatives, was able to reconcile these competing goals through the committee system in the House of Representatives. And so I have to say that probably throughout American history, the ability of the Democratic Party to compromise internally, not with the other party, but with itself, despite having vastly different cultural and ideological goals, um, I, I, I think I would point to that and say, you know, that is the, the period of the greatest compromise possible. But, you know, compromise is not always good. Um, you know, sometimes it's good for uh, the country to have a clear, uh, clear moral question and resolve it. Um, and additionally, in some cases, as we saw with the Democrats uh, going into the Civil War, um, they were unable to compromise internally. And so not only did they fragment over the question of slavery, but in fragmenting, they, they blew up the country uh, and we got the Civil War. Yep. And you that split in the Northern and Southern Democrats is quite visible with the passing of the Civil Rights Act, where they were trying to pass it, but 21, 20 out of the 61 Democrats were using the filibuster to block the passage, and that was really not much compromise, and Republicans had to join Democrats in order to get past the filibuster and actually pass the Civil Rights Act. Correct. Yes. Yeah, so the, the the Eisenhower administration had passed the Civil Rights Act, um, you know, previous to the Kennedy and the Johnson administrations. And that had been a much more partisan effort with, um, you know, some northern Democrats joining uh, the, um, the the 64, 65 flurry of legislation in the, in the wake of 
of John F. Kennedy's assassination, which goes beyond simply the Civil Rights Act, um, is, is in large part the triumph over uh, the Northern Democrats against the Southern Democrats, even though the Southern Democrats have greater seniority, more strength in the committee system in the Senate, a willingness to use the filibuster. And of course, Lyndon Johnson, the president, uh, is himself a Southern Democrat. Interesting. So now let's just take a step forwards in time and start to talk a little bit more about the modern American political system. So first of all, let's talk about the two-party system. The two-party sure. system is, it's considered by some to be one of the most stable governments in the world. Why would you really say the two-party system is so stable? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And there, there are different theories about this. Um, you know, the two-party system survived the Civil War. The Whig Party blew up and the Republicans were created um, in the years immediately before the Civil War. And yet, despite having the Civil War and everything that's happened since, we've still had more or less the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Um, I think that the, you know, the two-party system is driven in no small part by the way the Constitution assigns offices. Um, in the United States, if you get a majority of the vote plus one uh, in a geography, you win uh, the, that seat or in the case of the electoral college, the electoral votes for that, for that seat. Um, and and the, that means that there's no way to um, get a plurality and then make coalition deals, right? So in parliamentary systems, typically people vote for their preferred party, and then whichever party gets the most votes is typically well short of a majority and has to form a coalition by brokering with smaller parties. So you might give this party the, the Ministry of Sport and Athletics and this party the, you know, the Ministry of Environment and this part, you know, and, and you sort of portion out the different parts of the government to the smaller parties in order to make your, yourself a government. Um, the United States has has fixed a fixed calendar for elections, so the the party in power doesn't get to decide when it has an election. Um, every two years, we've got elections to the House and to the Senate, to a third of the Senate. And every four years, we have uh, the um, the presidential elections, and and each Senate term runs exactly six years, staggered by thirds. And so, um, the the result of that is that. Uh, because parties can't pick and choose when to have elections, uh, typically um, there's a there's a bit of randomness uh, thrown in, and in addition to that, you have uh, you have no means of building coalitions. So, for instance, if we had lots of different parties, Nancy Pelosi could go form them together, but it's much simpler for people who are Democrats in Texas, or sorry, people who are broadly liberal or inclined to support one set of goals and the same if they're broadly conservative inclined to support that other set of goals to in texas to call themselves democrats and align with people similarly ideologically inclined in san francisco and new york and montana and, and kentucky uh rather than um you know, try to be the Texas liberals and then align with Democrats from Minnesota and Green Party from Vermont or whatever. Um, so, so to some extent, the coalitional conflict that takes place in parliamentary parties in the United States takes place inside our two-party system. Um, that's part of why American political parties are not very ideological compared to other countries. Um, we have a lot of ideological diversity. The other thing the United States does that other countries don't do is um, in order to become a Republican or a Democrat in a state where that's they have party registration, not all states do, about 20 don't, all you have to do is go in when you register to vote and check your name on a box and say, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, um, I'm, a, you know, I'm a member of a third party. Um, in most countries, to become a member of a party, you have to take an exam, uh, you have to pay dues. Um, there's, there are very few members of parties. They're much more, to be a member of a party is much more like being what we would call an activist. Um, and so just the idea of parties in a parliamentary system is very, very different. They're competing for marginal gains frequently, uh, rather than, um, in, 
in the U.S. where you have bigger, broader parties competing for the whole enchilada. Wow. So seems it's a whole lot easier to really show your own bias or show your own side in the U.S. than it would be in another country. And speaking of joining political parties, let's move on to the next question. Um, sure. The party system consists of a whole bunch of people grouping together, likely because they have similar views. And people flocking together like this can be called tribalism. Do you think confirmation bias or the idea of only exposing yourself to information that confirms your ideas and shows that you're right rather than showing that you're wrong has a role in this sort of political tribalism? I, I, I don't. I have, a, I have a fairly contrary take on, um, on this. Um, so first of all, American politics has always been very, very nasty. Um, very nasty. Uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, John Adams referred to each other using language that would be totally unacceptable and unheard of, even in, in today's political culture, as coarse as it is. Um, and I, I won't repeat it because I don't want your the the students in your class to hear it. But but I suffice to say, I bet I couldn't play this podcast if you repeated it. <laughs> it yeah, exactly. It would it would be it would have to be bleeped out. Um, they they used very strong language, uh, very personal language, very insulting language about one another. Um, far worse than what we get today. So so part of it is we have a we have a belief that American politics used to be polite, and it really it really didn't. Um, it was always pretty nasty. Um, the other thing is, you know, most people don't derive their partisan identity from uh, rational reflection about the issues. It generally goes the other way around. The single best predictor of what your partisanship is going to be is what your parents' partisanship was. It's hereditary. Um, and what that means is what we're often doing is identifying as a Republican, identifying as a Democrat, and then rationalizing backwards into our beliefs, given that we're a member. So, so that is a kind of tribalism. But the problem is, is that it's not a self-conscious tribalism. And I do think that there's, there's been two phenomenons going on right now. Um, one is you know, partisan identity has gotten more important to people, but without them realizing that most of their political views they inherited, they didn't reason their way into having. And typically, when we think about the things that we've inherited, we have a greater deal of modesty about them, right? You know, I can't help that I have blue eyes and, and I'm not as tall as my dad. I wish I was, but I'm not. Um, you know, I, I, I can't help that I you know, my ancestors were English and Dutch and Norwegian. Um, that can be meaningful to me, but I don't, you know, I don't go around thinking anybody who didn't have English, Dutch, and Norwegian ancestors is bad. However, a lot of people feel like they became liberals or became conservatives out of enlightenment and that they have the truth and that anybody who doesn't agree with them is, is malicious or denying the truth. You're wrong. There are people who, uh, rather than being fellow Americans who just disagree with them, they're enemies to be vanquished, and they're not American citizens. They're terrorists, or they're just Correct. people who you don't desire to be in the country Correct. as, like, the country of your views. That's right. That's right. And so, so people have become less self-aware of the extent to which their political views are not their own. Um, and, and as a result, uh, now the parties have pushed apart on ideological questions. There's no doubt about that. But a lot of that has to do with our elites. And, and this is the final thing that I would say. You know, During much of the 20th century, the political discussion in the United States in the mainstream was pretty boring. It was pretty limited. You had not that many television channels. You had not that, you know, you had regional newspapers, but they mostly thought alike. Um, the big national newspapers all thought alike. And you had a certain degree of homogeneity among people who we would broadly call opinion makers. But that meant that a lot of American political discussion took place through other forums, through newsletters, through uh, lists, through um, political organizations that, that were not mainstream, um, some on the radical right, some on the radical left, some difficult to ideologically identify. 
And it was possible if you were a member of this kind of opinion-making set of people to simply ignore those other groups, those fringy groups, those groups out of the mainstream, because they were never on your television. They were never in your newspaper. They were never on your radio. For a large number of reasons, technology and especially the internet has blown up those kind of oligopolies, that shared control that these, these kind of viewpoints had. And now, if you're a television news host, you simply can't avoid um, different views because people are yelling at you on Twitter or they're sending you email or you know, they're, you're seeing your own family members talk about it on Facebook. And so what's happened is the kind of elite of the United States is much more aware of mass political discussion going on in the country now. And they don't like it. They're very scared of it because it, it threatens their control, but it, it actually doesn't because they never really had that much control. There was always a lot of crazy going on. So just like American politics has always been pretty, um, pretty, pretty nasty, it's also been pretty wild. We just, for a long time, the kind of mainstream was able to ignore these other discussions going on out there that, that were more fringy. So, um, you know, all that is, is, is a long way of saying that I think, you know, Americans would do well to know uh, or to remember that, you know, we are all Americans and none of us comes to his political ideas um, entirely of his own accord. Um, we're you getting know, them big parents. That's right. Big, or, or rejecting our parents so in the same way. You know, we, we're all we're all sort of just fumbling through the dark. And so so I I think we're I think we're in a better place when we realize when we're actually more self-conscious about how tribal politics is. Right. You know, in the 20th century, you might have somebody show up and say, well, I need to go get the Polish vote you know, people from Poland. And, and nobody thinks that, you know, you don't choose to be part of the Polish vote. You're just Polish and you vote. So, you know, you might have sets of issues that are common to people from Poland. There will be Republicans uh, in the Polish vote and Democrats, and you're competing internally to that. But, but nobody blames anyone for being Polish or not being Polish, right? Um, same with any other group, the Italian vote, the Irish vote, whatever, the union vote. Um, and, and that's a kind of tribal politics that's self-aware. And, and it's, I think it, it, it's more collaborative. What we have now is unselfconscious partisan tribalship, uh, sorry, partisan tribalism. And I think it's that lack of self-consciousness that really creates the problems. So it's tribalism, it's factionalism, but people don't feel that it is factionalism and you feel that you think they don't really feel like they want to acknowledge their own biases. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll just I'll tell you about myself, right? I'm I'm a Republican. I work in Republican politics. My parents are Republicans. Um, my grandparents were Republicans, with one exception. I think all of my great grandparents were Republicans. I, I you could describe me as ethnically Republican if you wanted, right? Um, I grew up in a Republican state. Now. I also, you know, my parents disagreed when I was growing up with each other on some big issues like abortion. Um, they had different views from one another. Uh, my parents didn't always vote the same way. My mother tended to vote more Republican, even though she was less conservative than my father. My father was generally more conservative, but voted for Ross Perot at least once, I think. So, you know, it's, I try to stay conscious of the fact that in many ways, and, and I grew up, I should say, in a very liberal college town. So am I a Republican because I looked at all of the sets of issues and rationally came to the conclusion that the Republican Party best represents my interests? No, I, I am what I am in large part because of my parents, because of my grandparents, because of my great grandparents. I'm also partially what I am because I, I like to be a bit of a, a, of a, I don't know what the word I'd say, a, a bit defiant, right? Um, to be a bit of a controversialist and growing up in a town full of liberal Democrats, I had fun being more conservative. It, it made me a kind of controversialist. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of all this. I can I imagine also have, that might be um, enjoyable in some ways and maybe not so enjoyable in others. Yeah. 
And, and you know, look, I also am a conservative of conviction. I, I have a, I have a PhD in political science. I studied political philosophy. I've thought these things through, and I believe them. But I can never know for sure that I believe them because they are right, or if I believe them because I think they're right because of who I am. And so while I I don't I don't doubt my convictions at all, and I carry forward. I mean, I dedicated my life to politics. This is what I choose to do. I also, you know, I, I officiated the wedding of one of my best friends who's a democratic political operative, um, you know, and I, I, I care a great deal for this person and his wife. He's been one of my best friends since we were both three years old and wow. I have known her since we were 15. Um, and so, you know, to me, you can, you can balance conviction with self-consciousness. In the present age, there are, I think, very few people who do that. And, and I think that's where a lot of the anger in America politics comes from. Okay, um, let's go on to the next question. Um, the two-party system and political parties in general can provide an easy voting opportunity for voters by knowing the ideology of a specific political party. Um, voters can vote for someone who represents their interests without having to research the specific candidate because they know, oh, I'm conservative, that person is a Republican in a conservative party, so I can vote for the Republican and represent my interests. On the flip side, political parties can have set ideologies and that could possibly exclude people from the parties that have views that don't conform with the views of either political party. How do you feel these two contrasting factors have affected voter turnout and satisfaction in elections? Ah, okay. So this is a really great question. Um, very, very good question. Um, so you're right. Uh, partisanship is a really important signal to voters. Um, I think it, we call those heuristics. They're, they're tools that help them read the situation and inform voters. Most voters are normal, well-adjusted people having normal lives. They don't have time to read up on every candidate for every office and every issue. And so they, they- 150 candidates on a ballot. Exactly. And, and the truth is, 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 you know, how do you monitor whether those candidates do what they say they were gonna do if you're not doing this full time? You can't. And so parties are, are shortcuts for people and they're really helpful shortcuts and they're good shortcuts. Mm -hmm. I, I, think, I think they're good. I, I, I'm one of these people who thinks that American political parties are a good thing and that partisanship is not something to be ashamed of. Um, now, now, one should still have a conscience and one should still be aware of, of the limits of, of partisanship, but, but political parties are not, um, not intrinsically bad. Um, your question about voter satisfaction, though, is a good one. Um, as I said earlier, you know, there are worse things for a party to do than run on an issue and lose. Um, there, are, the worst thing I think for a party to do is to do nothing. And um, right now, for a lot of different reasons, uh, the federal government doesn't seem to be able to do a lot, or Congress doesn't seem to be able to do a lot. And I think a lot of people are channeling frustration with a um, with a system that doesn't seem terribly responsive or terribly effective, they're channeling those frustrations into, um, into partisanship. So rather than saying, all right, let's step back and ask ourselves why Congress is broken. I have some theories as to why, but, but instead of saying that, people say, oh, well, it must be the Democrats or, oh, it must be the Republicans, right? Or worse still, a lot of people say, oh, it's just all politicians. They're all crooks. Why bother, right? And, and I think those are all bad attitudes to take. Um, and, and so you, you make a very good point, which is that partisanship is correlated with these, this dissatisfaction of the present day. But I think the cause is that the dissatisfaction reinforces partisanship rather than partisanship causing dissatisfaction. Okay, so one more question. As a political... Sure consultant, you probably do a lot of thinking about how to get voters to vote for a certain candidate. Is it generally more effective to focus on one group that 
say, holds the same views as your candidate, or to try to get people from both sides, possibly at the expense of maybe losing votes from the group that holds the same views as your candidate? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, and, and I will try to give you a good answer. It depends uh, in large part on the rules. So in some states, uh, anybody can vote in a primary. And, and you generally got it. We're, first, we'll talk about primary elections. Um, general elections are, are shaped more by the forces of the national economy, how foreign policy is doing, et cetera. And so there's not a lot that you can do to control things in a general election. But in primaries, this, this question really presents itself. Um, is it better to drill down and focus on voters who agree with you? Or is it better to try to get people to vote in primaries who've never voted before? And you know, in every campaign, you're kind of doing both. Uh, you're trying to mobilize your people and persuade the folks who are definitely going to vote. Because there's a population out there that you know is going to vote and is going to vote for you. There's a population out there that you know is going to vote and you know won't vote for you. There's a population out there that you know is going to vote. And you don't know how they're going to vote, but you want them to vote for you. And then there's a group of people out there who you don't know if they're going to vote, but if they do, it'll be for you. A group of people out there who you don't know if they're going to vote, but if they do, it won't be for you. And then a bunch of folks who are just total mysteries. And so what you want to do in campaigns is mobilize the people who are with you and persuade the people who are definitely going to vote. And then, you know, double check on the folks who are definitely going to vote. And if they do, they will vote for you just to make double sure that they, they get out there. And in some respects, every campaign can be boiled down to those math questions. Um, and then you, you tack towards solving different things, um, depending on uh, what the lay of the land is. Because ultimately, your goal is to get to enough votes that you win, whether that's in a state with a runoff where the top two people go into a runoff, or if it's a state where it doesn't matter what the highest percentage is, whoever has the most votes, even if it's 25% out of you know eight candidates running, that person wins. You try to answer these questions based on what you think um, what you think the fastest way to coming in first or in the case of a runoff second is. Um, and that, that's where for me, you know, I think a lot about how to talk to voters. Um, and, and really what I do is I come up with questions to ask the voters and then I let their answers uh, through, through polling, through focus groups, through reading letters to the editor or other things. I let them tell me uh, how they think and feel about things. Um, I think uh, listening is really the key thing to being a successful political consultant. We love to talk. But to be good at this, and I'm, I'm trying to be good at it, I'm learning, the, the best thing is, is to how to listen. Okay. Well, it seems that that's all the questions I had for you. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast and talk. And it, It's been my pleasure, Noah. You're a great host and very well prepared. So thank you for having me. Thank you again. And bye. Take care. That was The Split Line Episode 1, and this is your host, Noah Kyle, signing off. See you in the next episode.